0: On this episode of the Raised with Jesus podcast for our study Saturday, we have a special treat, Pastor John Hines' presentation at the Wisconsin Evangelical Lutheran Synod Convention in 2019. This one's a little bit longer, but I encourage you to listen to the entire thing and listen to it a couple of times. Maybe you can speed up the speed in your podcast app because it's definitely worth your time. Pastor John Hines giving the keynote presentation at this year's Synod Convention
1: good afternoon brothers the uh, agenda says essay which would imply something written i haven't written anything out for a number of reasons one is i thought that in this particular time slot when the food coma sets in uh... Um, actually having someone just kind of speak to you uh, might might be more engaging than someone just reading to you uh, secondly i think the, the topic that we're going to discuss is more conducive to uh... a conversation rather than an academic paper a conversation which is certainly going to begin today uh, but not not conclude today. Um, eventually, the, the PowerPoint that I'm going to share with you, as, as well as um, talking points, notes, uh, will be made available as a PDF, which you can take a look at. Uh, that'll be on the convention website tomorrow. So the presentation for the generations to come. He had treated the promise of God shabbily. God had promised him that he would make him into a great nation, that he would bless him, and that through his descendants, all nations would be blessed. But when God was, at least to Abram's way of thinking, too slow in keeping his promise, Abram decided to take matters into his own hands. Specifically, what he took into his own hands was Hagar, the servant of his wife from that act of adultery uh, a child was born drama ensued it was a train wreck Abram was eighty-six we do not hear of God speaking to Abram again until he's ninety-nine in those long intervening years with God possibly not speaking with Sarah certainly not conceiving a child what do you think was going through Abram's mind perhaps he thought because of my lack of faith because of my adultery is God just done with me he maybe was thinking about himself he might have also been thinking about those children he wanted to have BECAUSE OF WHAT I'VE DONE IN DISRESPECTING OUR GOD, WILL HE WANT ANYTHING TO DO WITH MY CHILDREN? AND SO, IN GENESIS 17, THE LORD COMES TO Abram. HE GIVES HIM A NEW NAME, ABRAHAM, THE FATHER OF MANY. HE ASSURES ABRAHAM THAT HIS WIFE, SARAH, WILL INDEED GIVE BIRTH, AND THAT FROM THAT SON WILL DESCEND KINGS. AND THEN THE LORD GIVES ABRAHAM THIS PROMISE, THIS BEAUTIFUL PROMISE. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you for the generations to come if we were to study how that phrase is used in the Old Testament we would find that it is typically used by God to comfort a believer who is worried about the well-being of his children or his children's children. When we gathered in convention two years ago, our theme was our great heritage. We were celebrating the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, and so we were rightfully spending a lot of time looking backwards. It's like for this convention, we've done a 180 looking forwards. FOR THE GENERATIONS TO COME, A PHRASE USED BY GOD TO COMFORT BELIEVERS WHO ARE CONCERNED ABOUT THEIR CHILDREN AND THEIR CHILDREN'S CHILDREN. IT'S A GOOD THEME BECAUSE THE SAINTS THROUGHOUT THE WELLS ARE CONCERNED ABOUT THEIR CHILDREN AND THEIR CHILDREN'S CHILDREN. It's not just that we know American culture is going to hell in a handbasket. We also see how our congregations, which are to be sanctuaries from the decay all around us, also seem to be in decline. In my position, I tend to get a, a lot of mail. I want to share just two of them with you here's a a a letter that i got just two weeks ago from a gentleman who is not a delegate and yet he somehow got a copy of the bow ram and read through it cover to cover so if you could actually earn your way into heaven by good works uh he's he's on his way he had read the demographic parts of the bow ram and he's this is what he wrote to me i've been a member at i won't say the name of the church for almost 40 years IN THAT TIME, WE HAVE LOST MAYBE TWO-THIRDS OF OUR MEMBERS. I DO NOT SEE HOW OUR CHURCH WILL REMAIN OPEN MUCH LONGER. THERE ARE NO OTHER CHURCHES NEARBY. I DON'T KNOW WHERE MY DAUGHTER AND GRANDCHILDREN GO IF MY CHURCH CLOSES. FOR THE GENERATION TO COME, A PHRASE USED BY GOD TO COMFORT THOSE WORRIED ABOUT THEIR CHILDREN AND THEIR CHILDREN'S CHILDREN. Here's a email I got from a lady whose congregation had gone through our self-assessment and adjustment program because they were aware of the fact they might have to close their doors in a couple of years if things don't change. She wrote, I'm not concerned about myself. I do not have much time left, and I know where I am going. Our church is mostly older members like me, but we also have some young families. I worry about what will happen to their faith if we close. For THE GENERATIONS TO COME A PHRASE USED BY GOD TO COMFORT PEOPLE WORRIED ABOUT THEIR CHILDREN AND THEIR CHILDREN'S CHILDREN IT IS A GOOD THEME FOR THIS TIME AND PLACE BECAUSE YOU KNOW THAT AMERICAN CHRISTIANITY IS UNRAVELING AT AN UNPRECEDENTED RATE AND WELLS IS NOT IMMUNE AND YET While heaven and earth will pass away, God's word will never pass away. So no matter what happens to your congregation, God's word will be there for your children and your children's children. God's mercies are new every morning. And so no matter what happens to our synod, God's mercy will be there for the generations to come. Standing in that mercy and confident of the power of God's word, which doesn't pass away, let's spend some time this afternoon discussing under this theme how we might do our best in this little corner of God's kingdom called the Wells to proclaim the gospel in the generations to come. We have four objectives for this afternoon. Number one, let's quantify exactly what's happening to Wells you're here as leaders in the church to make decisions you cannot make good decisions without good information so let's understand exactly what's going on goal number two let's attempt to identify some of the challenges that are before us Uh, these are challenges not just facing wells but facing all of american christianity uh, PRESIDENT Schrader PUT IT WELL IN THE bull RAM FORWARD AND ALSO IN HIS REPORT, HE SAID "In this, IN THIS CONFERENCE, WE'RE HERE TO HIGHLIGHT THE CHALLENGES BEFORE US, BUT THEN ALSO THE PRIVILEGE THAT GOD GIVES US IN ATTEMPTING TO USE THE GOSPEL TO RISE TO MEET THOSE CHALLENGES. THAT'S OBJECTIVE NUMBER THREE. LET'S DISCUSS SOME POSSIBLE STEPS WE MIGHT TAKE AS WE MOVE FORWARD IN FUTURE GENERATIONS TO TRY AND MEET THOSE CHALLENGES. AND THEN FINALLY, Let's be certain we understand our motivation. So quantify what's happening, identify the challenges, discuss future steps, understand our motivation. Quantifying what's happening. If you read through your BORAM, you saw this chart, which groups all net gains and losses in the wells over the last 50 years in five-year increments. From World War I on until the late 60s, wells grew almost every year, and the rate of growth tended to increase. 50 years ago, which coincides with what most people would say was the beginning of the decline of American Christianity in earnest, that changed. Those rapid gains began to increase. For 20 years, we were still growing, but each year growing less and less. A key year is 1991. That's when Wells was at its statistical peak with 421,000 members. That is also the year that the decrease in growth turned into losses. And as you see in the second part of the graph, those losses have increased year after year. Do you notice how symmetrical that graph is? It's important you note that. That tells us that what is happening to the wells, this isn't some modern thing. You can't even call it a trend. What is happening to the wells is a 50-year, very consistent trajectory that we need to wrestle with the ramifications of. I talked about how the decreases have been increasing year after year. Let's just look at the last five years. You'll see how each of those years, the percentage of members is lost, the number of members is lost, 2018 being our largest number of losses ever. When you add up the past five years, Wells has lost, declined, over 22,000 souls. If you want to put that in perspective, our sister synod, the Evangelical Lutheran Synod, has 19,000 souls. We lost the equivalent of the ELS in five years. If you would make a forecast looking at past history and just expect all trends to continue, not ever changing, this is the linear forecast. If underlining trends in gains like births and adult confirmations and losses like deaths and backdoor losses wouldn't change, Wells would cease to exist in 2065. Now, of course, you don't expect underlying trends not to change. Take, for example, the birth rate. Uh, President Schrader mentioned that in just the last 15 years, as Generation X, Um, has been replaced as being in their prime baby-making years by the Millennials the birth rate has declined from about 8500 to about 5,000 people that is an incredible decline in 10 years we wouldn't forecast that the birth rate is going to go down to zero I mean as long as Millennial couples have uh, Date Night and John Mayer music they're going to conceive a baby from time to time (laughs) um And so we look at these underlying trends, and there's lots of moving parts, different types of gains, different types of losses, and the best we can do is is forecast a range. So here's the forecast for the range of membership in one generation. In one generation, we could expect conservatively to be down 75,000, possibly as much as 123,000. You say, we're going to lose 75,000 people in 20 years. I don't think that's possible. We lost 23,005. Multiply that by four and realize that the rate of loss has been increasing now for 30 years. When we look out two generations, a forecast conservatively would have us down 188,000, possibly as much as down as 261,000. In other words, in two generations, it's possible the Wells has fewer than 100,000 members. Let's flip that over to congregations. People will ask, if if we've lost 70,000 members from our historic high, which is about right, why haven't we closed a ton of congregations? The explanation isn't hard. If a congregation doesn't have much debt, THERE'S NO PROBLEM IF IT GOES FROM 900 MEMBERS TO 100 MEMBERS. IT CAN STILL PAY A PASTOR, IT CAN STILL MAINTAIN THE FACILITY. BUT IT'S WHEN THAT CONGREGATION GOES FROM 100 MEMBERS TO 40 MEMBERS, TO 30, TO 20, THAT NOW IT FACES A CHALLENGE. And so what we've seen for the last 30 years is that while our membership has trended down steadily, congregations have kind of remained the same. Those two lines are about to start to parallel. It's already begun. Ten years ago, on average, wells closed about one church every eight to ten months. You're always going to have church closers. In more recent years, we are now closing one church every 8 to 10 weeks. If nothing changes, our forecast, for one generation, we could be down anywhere between 260 and 400 churches. In two generations, we could be down anywhere from 690 to 940 churches. In other words, nationwide, Wells would have somewhere in the middle 300s of congregations left about 40 years from now. It's important that when we, t- we, we, we discuss this, we mention something that President Schrader brought up in his report. This is not a problem that's unique to Wells. This is something that is facing all of American Christianity. Two years ago, I shared a demographic report of the Wells that we compared ourselves to other church bodies. In the time that Wells lost 9% of our membership from our historic high, the Missouri Synod lost 15%. The largest Presbyterian church in America lost 50%. You know how I said in five years we lost the equivalent of ELS? In two years, the Missouri Synod lost, or I'm sorry, the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America lost 400,000. They lost the equivalent of the Wells in two years. Even the Evangelicals, the Southern Baptists, those types of groups, they've been in decline for 15, 16 years. This is something that's, Facing all of American Christianity if you can take comfort in the fact that we're the the healthiest guy in the ICU I guess that would be true (laughs) What is concerning about these declines well, there's two things First we're concerned about the souls that are no longer connected to the means of grace Over the last 30 years Wells has lost on average 8,000 people out to the back door That's not counting deaths. That's people who just leave some of them left to go to other Christian church bodies. Most of them just quit church altogether. You added up, that's about a quarter of a million souls. We're concerned about whether or not they're still connected with the means of grace. Our other concern is, is how this might impact our worldwide gospel efforts. Uh, what you heard Pastor Schlomer talk about, Wells has this incredible worldwide gospel ministry taking place. But everything we do corporately as a church body, home missions, world missions, ministerial education, is predicated upon us having this strong backbone of established congregations providing CMO to support that work. What happens to our worldwide ministry if that backbone deteriorates? So We're concerned about that, too. Whenever I give this presentation, Someone will often come up to me at afterwards or at break, and they say, Pastor Hyde, I don't think that's going to happen. I welcome the pushback. I want the pushback. Realize what the next word out of my mouth is going to be. Why? When you say, I don't think, that implies thought. THAT IMPLIES THAT YOU HAVE SOME SORT OF UNDERLYING RATIONALE THAT EXPLAINS WHY THIS 50-YEAR TREND IS GOING TO ALL OF A SUDDEN TURN IT AROUND. I THINK WE CAN TURN IT AROUND. I'M JUST SAYING WE have, HAVE TO PUT SOME THOUGHT INTO IT TO THE VARIOUS CHALLENGES THAT ARE BEFORE US. THAT LEADS US TO THE SECOND THING WE WANT TO TALK ABOUT. WHAT ARE THE CHALLENGES THAT ARE FACING AMERICAN CHRISTIANITY, THESE UNPRECEDENTED CHALLENGES CAUSING TO THE UNRAVELING Of the Christian church. Well, you can just summarize it by saying the Christian church is falling apart. You've perhaps heard of the book Rise of the Nuns by James Emery White, Uh, he documents it very well how over the course of the 20th century, we went from about 19 out of 20 people claiming that they were religious to now one out of four saying that they have no religion at all. The rise of the nuns, those who have no religious affiliation. And that one out of four counts all Americans. When you look at young Americans, those who are under the age of 30, it's closer to between 45 and 49% who say that they have no religious affiliation. I gave the 50-year history of Wells. Here's the 50-year history of lots of different types of uh, religious groupings. Um, Take, for example, mainline denominations. They reached their peak in the 1960s, but they have been in decline ever since. How about the evangelicals? They grew for a while in the 70s and 80s and reached their peak in the 90s, but since then, they too have been in decline for a long period of time. The one religious grouping which has grown consistently over the last 50 years? Those who have no religion. That is now the largest religious grouping in America, those who claim to have no religion. Um, This graph summarizes how quickly this is happening. In just 10 years, from 2007 to 2017, 26 million Americans joined that group, an increase of 72% in one year. This is showing up in worship attendance as well. Post-World War II, as about 40% of Americans were in church on any given Sunday. Uh, A recent study shows that now it's closer to 16% of Americans go to church in any given week. And when you compare the numbers, it's not that the decline is simply that people are leaving the church. Those who are remaining in the church are going to church less and less, are becoming more disengaged. You add it all up, and it's pretty telling. Right now in America, over the course of the past decade, we've closed about 5,000 churches a year. There are some. Uh, Tom Rainier, for example, is kind of a... A studier of church culture, he thinks it's closer to 10. I think that's a little high when you dig into the denominational statistics. 5,000 is a conservative number. That's enough. 96 per week, uh, 13 every single day. The thing that's challenging about turning this around is the unchurched uh, uh, percentage of, of generations increases as you get younger. When you look at this chart that produced by Barna last year, the Barna Research Group, which studies Christian trends, just look at how atheism doubles in one generation. From millennials to Generation Z, those saying, I don't believe in God at all, that doubled in one generation. Just, it's just astonishing. So what's the challenges that we're facing? American Christianity is unraveling. You can rightly say, every religious expert says, America has now become a post-Christian nation, just like Europe, just like Canada. Let's take it a little deeper. What are the underlying causes that led to this? Here we can look at some seismic shifts in, in um, American religious culture that have taken place in the last decade or two. Shift number one, post-modernism has led to religious pluralism. Postmodernism is a philosophy that came to prominence in the late 20th century. Its central tenet is that there is no such thing as absolute truth. Truth is relative, truth is subjective. So, what you believe to be true is true for you. It's not necessarily true for me. Think of what that does to religion. Religion loses the ability to be a claim on the truth. Like, we would say that's what Christianity is. It is a proclamation of reality. There really was God and man combined in one person, Jesus Christ. He really did live for us, die for us, and rise for us, and was seen by hundreds of eyewitnesses. He really will come again. Postmodernism turns religion into basically a coping mechanism, in which case whatever works for you is what works for you if it's comforting to you to think that when your dad dies he gets to go to a beautiful place called heaven that's your truth but it's if it's comforting to you to think that when your dad dies he's absorbed into nature and so that you can commune with him as you are watering your shrubbery well that's your truth IF YOU THINK THAT JESUS IS GOD AND THAT BELIEF GIVES MEANING AND PURPOSE TO YOUR LIFE, THAT'S YOUR TRUTH. BUT IF YOU BELIEVE ALLAH IS GOD AND THAT belief GIVES MEANING AND PURPOSE TO YOUR LIFE, THEN THAT'S TRUE FOR YOU. RELIGIOUS PLURALISM, ALL RELIGIONS BECOME THE SAME THING, They're just coping mechanisms which may or may not work for you. In 1989, a Scottish theologian uh, and researcher named Leslie Newbigin wrote kind of a groundbreaking book called The Gospel in a Pluralistic Society. He predicted two things in that book, that as religious pluralism became more common among us, first of all, the church would be viewed by many as irrelevant. After all, if the church doesn't own the truth, if it's just a coping mechanism, you probably don't need it. Secondly, churches with exclusivity claims would be perceived especially negatively. What's an exclusivity claim? That's what we have. We don't say Jesus is a way, a truth, a life. He is the way, the truth, the only way to eternal life. In a postmodern secular society, they would say that's... THAT'S TOO AGGRESSIVE, TRYING TO PUSH YOUR BELIEFS ON OTHER PEOPLE. Newbegin's PREDICTIONS HAVE PROVEN TO BE TRUE. A 2014 STUDY BY THE BARNA GROUP ASKED uh, AMERICANS UNDER THE AGE OF 30, FIRST OF ALL, IS ATTENDING CHURCH IMPORTANT? ONLY TWO OUT OF TEN SAID YES, EIGHT OUT OF TEN SAID NO. WHY? BECAUSE THE CHURCH IS IRRELEVANT IN A RELIGIOUSLY PLURALISTIC SOCIETY. The second question they asked, would you agree that the church does more harm than good? One out of three said yes. That when churches try and proselytize, when they try and push their view on others, that's demeaning, it's it's a bad thing. This is the first big shift that postmodernism has led to religious pluralism, that all religions are to be equally accepted and all religions are equally somewhat irrelevant. Second shift. Secular humanism has become the basis of morality and ethics. Secularism is a, is a de-emphasis on the spiritual, on the eternal, a focus on the here and now. Humanism is the very optimistic view, view that a human being can achieve uh, meaning and purpose and joy in life completely apart from God. So a secular humanist and an atheist are not the same thing. An atheist says there is no God. A secular humanist says, there might be a God, I just don't need him to live a purposeful life or a moral life. I want to play you a video clip that's put out by a group of secular humanists. It's a whole bunch of clips that they have on uh, YouTube. It's kind of like a bit class for uh, secular humanists. Uh, It summarizes their philosophy pretty well.
2: What makes something right or wrong? Some people believe that what is right and wrong never varies from situation to situation and that it can be expressed in constant and unchanging commandments. They often look to religious texts or authorities to discover what they think a god wants them to do. A humanist view of morality is different. Humanists do not look to any god for rules but think carefully for themselves about what might be the best way to live. This approach means we have always to be empathetic and think about the effects of our choices on the happiness or suffering of the people, or sometimes other animals, concerned. We have to respect the rights and wishes of those involved, trying to find the kindest course of action or the option that will do the least harm. We have to consider carefully the particular situation we find ourselves in, and not just take any rule or commandment for granted. We have to weigh up the evidence we have available to us about what the probable consequences of our actions will be. This way of thinking about what we should do is explicitly based on reason, experience and empathy and respect for others, rather than on tradition or deference to authority. It might sound hard, but luckily most of us do it most of the time without really thinking about it. Morality is not something that comes from outside of human beings. Gifted to us by an external force like a god. When we look at our closest relatives in the animal world, we see the same basic tendencies we recognize in ourselves affection, cooperation, all the behavior needed to live in groups and thrive.
1: Guy sounds smart, doesn't he? British accent, you sound pretty smart. In Romans, ST. PAUL SAYS THE CHALLENGE WITH UNBELIEVERS ISN'T JUST THAT THEY DON'T KNOW THE TRUTH, IT'S THAT THEY SUPPRESS THE TRUTH TO TRY AND SUPPORT UNDERLYING VALUES AND BELIEFS. I THINK YOU SAW AN EXAMPLE OF THAT IN THE VIDEO. WHAT HE ESSENTIALLY SAID IS, CLEARLY, WE DON'T NEED A GOD TO TEACH US HOW TO TREAT ONE ANOTHER RIGHTLY. ALL WE HAVE TO DO IS LOOK AT THE ANIMAL WORLD AND HOW KINDLY AND compassionately ANIMALS TREAT ONE ANOTHER. Has that been your observation of the animal kingdom? You turn on National Geographic and there are all the hyenas in a nice orderly line taking turns to eat the elephant carcass, being polite to one another. The wicked suppress the truth, Paul says, but that's secular humanism. It's the suppression of the truth, the belief that, that man is able, completely apart from God, apart from religion, to achieve a happy, purposeful, meaningful life. So you don't need God. All you would need, a secular humanist would say, is reason and your conscience, which is so ironic because what is the conscience? It's the voice of God written upon your heart. IT'S THE SECOND BIG SHIFT THE BASIS OF MORALITY IN AMERICA TODAY YOU DON'T NEED RELIGION Secular humanism says, we're fine just on our own. Those first two shifts have led to the third. There's no longer any guilt in not following Christian norms. Uh, Studies have shown, uh, for the longest time, it was reported that 40% of Americans went to church in any given week, and that really since 1950, that's been a lie. Um, Americans were saying they were going to church, but they actually aren't. It's closer to what I reported before, somewhere around 15%. (laughs) Uh, but there was this societal pressure to say that you were a Christian. That pressure is gone. People are not uncomfortable now telling you that they don't go to church. I think you see the, uh, the lack of pressure into complying to Christian norms may, maybe most prevalent, prevalently uh, in the way youth sports activities have changed. When I was a little kid, there was no soccer or softball on Sunday morning. But where I served in Charleston, South Carolina for 20 years, which is the very conservative buckle of the Bible belt, the last half of my ministry, I had to compete with Sunday morning youth activities. This is just another cultural shift. It's no big deal anymore uh, if you're not religious. You can almost make the argument that this is a positive. A lot of Christianity in America is what we could call cultural Christianity. It's not that the people were actually connected in a faith relationship with Jesus Christ. They just called themselves Christian because they thought that's what Americans were supposed to say. The fact that that's going away is maybe healthy. It lets us identify what's really going on, who's targets for our evangelism efforts. Another shift to touch on real briefly, the traditional family structure has a low, uh, eroded. Children are now uh, born into a two-parent married family are now the minority. What has arisen drastically in recent decades is children who belong to single parents, and, and the single parents go to church at a substantially lower rate than married parents. It can be a little sympathetic for that. Uh, let's say you have a 27-year-old single mom with two kids. It's a lot of work to bring her two kids to church she gets them to church and they're little hellions and she doesn't have a husband to help keep the kids in line so she doesn't feel like she's getting much out of church the singles they don't go to church nearly as much one of the biggest growths in family up to six percent or seven percent now is cohabitating parents It is only about one-half of 1% of cohabitating parent family units that go to church on a regular basis. So another shift in American culture is the erosion of the family. I think you know about this one. Uh, Trust in the church as an institution is largely eroded. The the sexual scandals in the Catholic Church, embezzlement scandals in some of the evangelical megachurches. But a corresponding shift, which is even more troublesome, When there is a scandal or hypocrisy or a conflict, a disagreement in the church, which is inevitable because the church is made up with sinners, more and more what Americans are just doing now is quitting church. Used to be there was a scandal. Let's say the pastor commits adultery. Maybe some people would leave, but then they would come back eventually, or they would at least transfer to a different church. NOW IT'S WHEN SOMETHING HAPPENS IN THE CHURCH THAT THEY DON'T LIKE, IT'S ALMOST LOOKED LIKE AMERICANS ARE LOOKING FOR AN EXCUSE TO BE DONE WITH CHURCH ALTOGETHER. I THINK YOU ALMOST SEE THIS IN THE WELLS AS WELL. Uh, I MENTIONED EARLIER THAT OVER THE LAST 30 YEARS, WE'VE LOST ON AVERAGE 8,000 PEOPLE OUT THE BACK DOOR EVERY YEAR. IN MOST OF THE 2000'S, THAT WAS SPLIT FAIRLY EQUALLY. ABOUT HALF OF THOSE 8,000 WOULD GO TO CHRISTIAN CHURCHES OF OTHER DENOMINATIONS NOT IN FELLOWSHIP WITH US, AND ABOUT HALF WOULD LEAVE ENTIRELY. BUT IN THE PAST FIVE YEARS, IT'S SHIFTED. IF A WELLS MEMBER LEAVES WELLS, THEY ARE 400% MORE LIKELY RIGHT NOW JUST TO BE DONE WITH CHURCH COMPLETELY THAN THEY ARE TO JOIN A DIFFERENT CHRISTIAN DENOMINATION. ANOTHER BIG SHIFT. TECHNOLOGICAL ADVANCES uh, HAVE LED TO SHIFTS and how we consume content. This is especially true of younger generations. A local consumption and asynchronous consumption. What does that mean? A local consumption. If it's your anniversary next week, first of all, you're welcome for me reminding you. Uh, Secondly, you don't have to go to the flower shop or the jeweler to buy your wife a gift right now as you're getting bored with me sharing all these statistics you could pull out your phone open up an app and you could buy what you want your local consumption you don't need to go someplace to get what you want asynchronous consumption In the hind family growing up one of our cherished traditions was that at eight o'clock on saturday night mom would make some sort of snack like popcorn and we would gather in the tv room and my family would watch the muppet show together my father passed away this past year but if you ever met him he could do a swedish chef imitation that would knock your socks off we had to be there eight o'clock on saturday night you wanted to consume the Muppet Show, you had to be there at the right time. That isn't the way people watch television anymore. They binge watch consuming that content whenever they want. Your local consumption, asynchronous consumption, this is how the younger generation views things. Think then of how they view church. If we portray the worship service as a place to consume spiritual content, and we say to get that content, you need to be in a certain place at a certain time. We are sharing a content in a way the younger generation has said we want nothing to do with that. This is a question I want you to file away in the back of your head. We'll answer it a little bit later. If a young person can go online, and watch a good sermon with law and gospel presentation. And if they can go on Spotify and put together a playlist of their favorite hymns and spiritual songs to listen to or to sing along to, what do they need your congregation for? We need to wrestle with that question if we're gonna meet the challenge of sharing the gospel for generations to come. There are other cultural challenges that we could talk about, but we simply don't have the time, but to put it all together, and this has had a cumulative effect. Sociologists will tell you that right now, the youngest generation, and I think they're calling it the I generation, is the first generation in America where a large majority of, of kids have almost no religious experience. THEY MAYBE HAVE SET FOOT IN CHURCH ON CHRISTMAS EVE OR FOR A FUNERAL, BUT OTHER THAN THAT, RELIGION IS COMPLETELY FOREIGN TO THEM. I WANT TO PLAY YOU A CLIP NOW um, OF... HIS NAME IS DR. DAVID VOSS. HE'S THE HEAD OF THE SOCIOLOGY DEPARTMENT AT THE UNIVERSITY COLLEGE IN LONDON. Uh, HE'S GIVING A TED TALK IN WHICH HE DESCRIBES... this. WE SEE THIS THROUGHOUT WESTERN CULTURE. Um, that the younger generations they have no religious experience at all listen to what he concludes that this means for Christianity in the West
0: so the secular transition is underway but why should it be irreversible I think the key reason is that people with no religion have great difficulty in acquiring one and if you're wondering why that's the case it might help in understanding this to think about a religion that's not your own now I'm going to guess that most of you watching aren't Hindu apologies to those of you who are you can think of a different religion but here as an example are some of the Hindu deities and here are some scenes of Hindu worship Now some of you may decide that Hinduism is the faith that you've been looking for, but I suspect that for most of you, it seems a bit exotic, strange, maybe even slightly scary. And I suggest that that's the position that a large proportion of young adults in the West are in with respect to any religion. They weren't brought up going to church and they don't feel comfortable attending. They didn't grow up with Christian doctrine. That's not to say that they won't become Christian. Some will, many will. Some will become Hare Krishna or Muslim or Buddhist, but most won't. And for most, in fact, it's nearly impossible. You have to be raised with religion to find it natural. Now, I'm not suggesting that religious belief is inherently implausible, or religious practice is inherently odd. On the contrary, what I want to argue is that it's a matter of custom and culture. So, in the past, in the West, most people had a religion, at least nominally, most people had some sort of religious knowledge. Religious involvement was the norm, and it was supported by culture and popular sentiment these days the default is quite the reverse many people grow up with very little acquaintance with religion or religious identity religion has become almost countercultural. indeed to the extent that people have any contact with religion it's often in news stories about extremism or abuse or intolerance and that's simply not conducive for religious revival I'm not arguing that Westerners are all rationalists with a naturalistic worldview on the contrary a large proportion at least half believe in God uh, or something out there a higher power perhaps Uh, another large perhaps non overlapping proportion believe in some form of life after death but for most people it's not something they're very interested in it's not something that's very important in their lives they have little interest in becoming religiously active so the secular transition is underway because it proceeds by generational replacements it works very slowly and will be going on for years to come when it comes to human beings nothing is certain But i hope that i've shown you that there's a good argument there's no way back for religion in the west thank you
1: no way back for religion in the west because we now have a generation in europe it's two where the majority of people have absolutely no religious experience. And so a comeback, which you might call a a great awakening, a revival of some sort, impossible. Do you agree with him? He's right if spiritual revival is the work of man. If it's on our shoulders to turn the church around, we're doomed. But spiritual revival is not our work. It's God's. And God is the God of the impossible. It's impossible to walk on water, and that's what the Son of God did. It is impossible to feed 5,000 people with a boy's lunch, and yet that's what happened. It is impossible that you and I, who were born into this world spiritually dead and hostile to God, would now not only know who got his, but that we would love him. BUT THAT IS THE POWER OF THE GOSPEL it ENABLES US TO DO THE IMPOSSIBLE. AND SO I DISAGREE WITH DAVID VOSS'S CONCLUSION. I THINK THAT STANDING IN THE GOSPEL, CONFIDENCE IN THE GOSPEL, THE WISCONSIN Senate NOT ONLY CAN RISE TO MEET THE CHALLENGES THAT ARE BEFORE US. I'M CONFIDENT WE WILL, WHICH IS THE NEXT PART OF THIS PRESENTATION. WHAT ARE SOME STEPS MOVING FORWARD? Uh, Here, I want to ask some questions, key questions that pertain to some of those cultural shifts that I talked about earlier. The first key question, how much of the blame for the decline in church life do we place upon our culture, and how much blame do we place upon ourselves? It's easy to look at the decline of our congregations and to say, well, we are living in the end times. Jesus said the love of most will grow cold. It's easy to say, well, American culture has gone to hell in a handbasket. Americans don't care about church anymore. And those are accurate and certainly contributing factors to our congregational decline. Have we in any way contributed to our congregational, congregations decline? We need to understand it's not just that America that has a culture. Congregations have a culture too. And because congregations are made up with sinners, sometimes not all aspects of that culture is going to be healthy. St. Paul says, there is nothing good that lives in me that is in my sinful nature. The question is, how might the sinful nature manifest itself in a rotten congregational culture? Maybe it shows up in your congregation in members that have a consumer mindset. THEY WANT CHURCH THE WAY THEY WANT CHURCH. PASTOR, YOU BETTER WORSHIP THE WAY I WANT, USING THE HYMNS I LIKE AT THE TIME I WANT. PASTOR, YOU BETTER GIVE ME A LUTHERAN EDUCATION FOR MY CHILDREN. AND I ALREADY GIVE OFFERINGS, SO DON'T YOU DARE ASK ME TO CONTRIBUTE MORE IN THE WAY OF TUITION. THAT IS A CONSUMER MINDSET, WHICH IS COMPLETELY ANTITHETICAL TO THE SERVANT MINDSET CHRIST WOULD HAVE US DEMONSTRATE, AND IT'S TOXIC TO THE CHURCH. MAYBE THE SINFUL NATURE MANIFESTS ITSELF IN YOUR CONGREGATION IN THE FACT THAT YOU DEMONSTRATE AN INWARD FOCUS, AN APATHY FOR THE LOST IN YOUR COMMUNITY. WHEN YOU LOOK AT THE GREAT COMMISSION PASSAGES AND YOU BOIL IT DOWN, IT REALLY COMES DOWN TO TWO ACTIVITIES. THERE ARE THE GOAL PASSAGES. IT IS THE MISSION OF THE CHURCH TO SHARE THE GOSPEL WITH ALL WE CAN SO THAT THE SPIRIT MIGHT HAVE THE POSSIBILITY TO PULL THOSE PEOPLE IN THE CHURCH. ONCE THEY'RE IN THE CHURCH, THERE'S THE DISCIPLESHIP ASPECT. We continue to share God's Word so that those people grow closer to Christ and move along a spiritual spectrum of biblical knowledge and sanctified service. If your congregation plans for the latter, budgets for the latter, trains members to do the latter, but they kind of just hope the former happens naturally without any planning or budgeting, THERE IS AN UNHEALTHINESS IN YOUR CONGREGATIONAL CULTURE WHICH COULD BE CONTRIBUTING TO CONGREGATIONAL DECLINE. I COULD GO ON AND ON WITH ALL OF THESE, BUT I THINK YOU GET THE POINT. I HAD A PHONE CALL WITH A PASTOR A COUPLE OF MONTHS AGO. Uh, HE HAD READ AN ARTICLE THAT I HAD WRITTEN AND, and I WAS TAKING umbrage WITH IT. HE SAID, uh, JOHN, IT SOUNDS LIKE YOU'RE ACCUSING ME OF BEING UNFAITHFUL. AND I SAID, I, I WANT YOU TO reread WHAT I WROTE. I DON'T SAY THAT ANYWHERE. BUT I FIND IT FASCINATING THAT YOU THINK I DID. LET ME ASK YOU, DO YOU THINK YOU'VE BEEN FAITHFUL? WE TALK THAT WAY ALL THE TIME. THE ONLY THING THAT IS NECESSARY IS THAT WE BE FAITHFUL. BROTHERS, I DON'T KNOW ABOUT YOU, BUT THERE HAS NOT BEEN A DAY IN MY MINISTRY WHERE I'VE BEEN ENTIRELY FAITHFUL, WHERE I'VE ALWAYS DONE THINGS WITH THE PROPER MOTIVATION where I've always scheduled my time the way Jesus would have me schedule it, where I've been quick to do the necessary things but things that are scary for me rather than just running to the things which are easy to me that I like to do. I think if we're going to move forward sharing the gospel for generations to come, this is step one. It's very Lutheran, the very first of the 95 theses. Luther says the entire life of the believer is to be one of Repentance. WE CAN DO THIS PRECISELY BECAUSE WE KNOW OF GOD'S UNCONDITIONAL GRACE THAT HIS APPROVAL FOR US HAS NOTHING TO DO WITH OUR FAITHFULNESS, BUT WITH HIS FAITHFULNESS TO US DEMONSTRATED IN CHRIST'S LIFE. THIS IS STEP ONE FOR US MOVING FORWARD. WE WILL ACKNOWLEDGE THAT IT IS NOT JUST THE WORLD AROUND US THAT HAS A SINFUL CULTURE. OUR CONGREGATION CAN HAVE SINFUL ASPECTS TO ITS CULTURE AS WELL. WE WILL REPENT. And in our planning, we will produce the appropriate fruits. We'll, we'll plan to carry out the mission of the church in our planning. Second key question. How do we combat the pluralism, humanism, and mistrust of the church that we said has crept into our culture? I think we probably begin by needing to define what culture is. I've heard some describe culture as the personality of a group. Uh, For example, the town of New Alm has a personality. It has a culture. I'll let you define that. Uh, um, Likewise, congregations can have a culture. The communities that we're called in can have a culture. I've heard culture also defined as the sum total of the collective preferences, traditions, and beliefs of the group. That's pretty good. I think it's easiest to picture it. IF YOU PICTURE CULTURE AS AN APPLE, there's, THERE'S CERTAIN ASPECTS OF CULTURE, SURFACE CULTURE, THAT ARE VERY EASY TO SEE. THOSE ARE PREFERENCES. SO WHAT DOES THIS GROUP, HOW DO THEY PREFER TO EAT? WHAT DO THEY PREFER, uh, uh, WHAT LANGUAGE DO THEY PREFER? How do they, HOW DO THEY DRESS? YOU GET TO KNOW PEOPLE A LITTLE BETTER, you, YOU DIG DOWN DEEPER INTO THE MEAT OF THE APPLE. NOW YOU'RE TALKING ABOUT SYMBOLIC CULTURE. WHAT IS THIS GROUP'S SYMBOLS AND TRADITIONS? IN AMERICA, IF A GUY WEARS A BLUE SHIRT WITH A GOLD SHIELD ON IT, THAT'S SYMBOLIC. IT MEANS SOMETHING. AT THE END OF THE GOSPEL, WHEN WE SAY, PRAISE BE TO YOU, O CHRIST, THAT'S A TRADITION THAT HAS A MEANING. SO THAT'S THE SECOND LEVEL OF CULTURE. BUT WHAT WE CARE ABOUT MOST IS CORE CULTURE, BELIEFS OR VALUES. THAT WOULD BE THE CLOSEST THING THAT THERE IS TO FAITH. Part of our job moving forward, then, is to go into our communities and better understand and accommodate these surface aspects of culture, these superficial aspects, in our effort to try and change the people of our community's core culture, their beliefs and values. I think you have a good example of this in St. Paul's ministry. You read Acts 13 when he's in the synagogue in Pisidian Antioch. HE'S VERY RESPECTFUL TO THE SURFACE LEVEL OF CULTURE. HE DOESN'T JUST WALK IN AND START TALKING. HE SITS DOWN AND LISTENS TO ALL THE LESSONS BEING READ. HE DOESN'T SPEAK UNTIL THE LEADER OF THE SYNAGOGUE INVITES SOMEONE TO GET UP AND SPEAK. WHEN HE DOES SPEAK, HE ACKNOWLEDGES THE PREFERENCES, THE CULTURE OF THE PEOPLE HE'S TRYING TO REACH, WHICH IS JEWS. AND SO HE QUOTES SCRIPTURE. HE BRINGS UP ALL THE GREAT HEROES OF FAITH, MOSES AND and DAVID AND ABRAHAM. HE ACCOMMODATES THOSE SURFACE LEVELS OF CULTURE, BUT ULTIMATELY, WHAT HE WANTS TO CHANGE IS THEIR CORE CULTURE, THEIR DEEPEST VALUES. WHAT THEY VALUED WAS THEIR HERITAGE. WE ARE DESCENDANTS OF ABRAHAM, AND PAUL EXPLAINS TO THEM, THE ONLY THING THAT MAKES THAT SPECIAL IS THE MESSIAH IS A DESCENDANT OF ABRAHAM, AND YOU REJECTED HIM. Paul accommodated those surface culture, cultural trends in order to try and change core culture. He completely shifts his tactics then in Acts 17 when he gets to Mars Hill in Athens. There he's not speaking to Jewish people, he's speaking to Greeks. While he certainly shares scriptural truths, we don't hear him quoting scripture. What he quotes is Greek poets. HE COMMENDS THE ATHENIANS FOR BEING SO HIGHLY RELIGIOUS. HE SAYS, YOU'VE BUILT ALL THESE BEAUTIFUL SHRINES TO ALL THE GODS. BUT THEN HE SAYS, BUT YOU COVERED YOUR BASES BY BUILDING ONE SHRINE TO AN UNKNOWN GOD. I'M HERE TO TELL YOU THAT YOUR RELIGION IS ABSOLUTELY WORTHLESS UNTIL YOU KNOW AND WORSHIP THAT ONE. HE INCOMMODATED THOSE SURFACE LEVELS OF CULTURE IN ORDER TO TRY AND CHANGE THE CORE CULTURE. In generations to come, we need to do a better job of understanding the culture of our community. I've worked with too many churches that were formed when the neighborhood was 90% German and 10% Polish. And they are still worshiping the same way, conducting ministry the same way, conducting school the same way, now that the neighborhood is 80% Latino and 20% African American. WE NEED TO LOOK AT AND WHEN POSSIBLE ACCOMMODATE THOSE SURFACE uh, CULTURAL ASPECTS IN OUR EFFORTS TO TRY AND CHANGE PEOPLE'S CORE CULTURE, THEIR DEEPEST BELIEFS. GREAT QUOTE ABOUT THIS FROM PROFESSOR PAUL WENDLAND IN A PAPER HE WROTE ABOUT 12 YEARS AGO. It says, culture is hugely important when it comes to communicating Christ in a way that our listeners can understand. We want to do everything we can to remove stumbling blocks to the truth. And so we will adapt our message, as did Paul. That means we will adapt whenever possible our forms of communication, story, speech, song, so that they are congenial to the host culture. PAUL FELT FREE TO QUOTE GREEK POETS, WE ARE FREE TO USE THEIR APPROPRIATE CULTURAL EQUIVALENT AND OUR OWN COMMUNICATED CONTEXT. WE WILL REMAIN TRUE TO THE MESSAGE OF SIN AND GRACE. WE WILL NOT DILUTE THE WORD OF TRUTH. WE WILL NOT HOLD BACK FROM SAYING REPENT BECAUSE WE HAVE TO CHANGE THE CORE CULTURE. BUT WE'RE WILLING TO ACCOMMODATE THOSE SURFACE LEVELS OF CULTURE IN OUR EFFORT TO DO THAT. Uh, I'M NOT GOING TO GO TOO LONG INTO THE INSTITUTE OF LUTHERAN APOLOGETICS, IT WAS uh, BROUGHT UP A LITTLE EARLIER, BUT THIS IS A GROUP IN THE WELLS THAT WILL BEGIN TO FUNCTION NEXT YEAR, IT BRINGS TOGETHER PASTORS, TEACHERS, LAYMEN WITH uh, SCIENTIFIC EXPERTISE WHO HAVE A PASSION IN APOLOGETICS. Um, apologetics narrowly is defined as the defense of Chris, the Christian faith. I think we can define it a little more broadly uh, as presenting the, the, the Christian faith in a way that relates and is relevant to our host culture. Oh, there will be two goals of, of the ILA. First, we'll be producing a curriculum that helps better prepare our youth to go off and face an increasingly secular humanistic worldview, especially in secondary education. Uh, the second will be to ha- uh, witnessing materials to help um, tra- train our people to share their faith um, in a culture that's uh, becoming more and more um, anti-Christian. By the power of the Spirit then, we will seek to better understand our local culture and community we will appropriately accommodate surface culture preference and customs and our desire to change the core culture the beliefs of the people god brings into our circle of influence in other words to put it another way if secular humanism postmodernism, uh, um, uh, religious pluralism are concepts we fight against them with concepts with ideas with talk And I think if we're going to share the gospel in the generations to come, it's going to take more than us just being willing to talk. A fantastic book that I would commend for you to pick up and read is called To Change the World. Listen to the subtitle, The Irony, Tragedy, and Possibility of Christianity in the Late Modern World by James Davison Hunter. Uh, Dr. Hunter is a sociology professor at the University of uh, Virginia. He actually started a think tank there to study American culture, including religious culture. That think tank is headed up by our own Dr. Ryan Olson, uh, a Wells member who is sitting over there in the Synodical Council as the representative from the North Atlantic District. In this book, uh, um, Hunter makes it very clear that the only thing which can create faith is the gospel that's the only thing that can bring life from death but he argues that a big reason that the early church exploded the way they did is that christians did such an excellent job at winning an audience for the gospel in the way they lived their lives that the early christian church lived lives that was marked by courage in compassion, in generosity, in hospitality. I want to read you a snippet from his book. He writes I would suggest that a, faith, uh, uh, that a, that a theology of faithful presence first calls Christians to attend to the people and places they experience directly. It is not that believers should be disconnected from people and places around the globe, far from it. CHRISTIANS ARE CALLED TO GO INTO ALL THE WORLD, BUT WITH THAT SAID, THE CALL OF FAITHFUL PRESENCE GIVES PRIORITY TO WHAT IS RIGHT IN FRONT OF US, THE COMMUNITY, THE NEIGHBORHOOD, IN THE CITY, AND THE PEOPLE OF WHICH THESE ARE CONSTITUTED. LISTEN TO WHAT HE'S SAYING. HE'S NOT SAYING THAT IT'S NOT A GOOD THING THAT YOU SUPPORT OUR EFFORTS IN VIETNAM. HE'S SAYING YOU SHOULD BE JUST AS PASSIONATE ABOUT SHARING THE GOSPEL WITHIN YOUR COMMUNITY. Serving the people that God brings into our lives and in whatever way he brings them into their lives It's what what hunter calls uh, The theology of faithful presence. That's very close to a Lutheran doctrine. What do we call that? The doctrine of the vocation That you don't need to be a pastor to serve God Well that you can serve God well by serving your fellow man in all sorts of different ways uh, That God will call you to hunter goes on IT IS HERE, THROUGH THE JOYS, SUFFERINGS, HOPES, DISAPPOINTMENTS, CONCERNS, DESIRES, AND WORRIES OF THE PEOPLE WITH WHOM WE ARE IN LONG-TERM AND CLOSE RELATIONSHIP, FAMILY, NEIGHBORS, CO-WORKERS, AND COMMUNITY, WHERE WE FIND OUR AUTHENTICITY AS A BODY OF BELIEVERS. IT IS HERE WHERE WE LEARN FORGIVENESS AND HUMILITY, hospitality HOSPITALITY AND CHARITY, GROW IN PATIENCE AND WISDOM, AND BECOME CLOTHED IN COMPASSION, GENTLENESS AND JOY pursuit identification the author of offer of life through sacrificial love this is what god's faithful presence means it is a quality of commitment that is active not passive intentional not accidental so i'm not just going to wait for an opportunity to show love for, to my my next door neighbor i'm going to plan how i'm going to do it it is covenantal not contractual so i'm not under law but i'm under grace the quality of commitment implied in faithful presence invari- invariably imposes costs. In this light, there is no true leadership without putting at risk one's time, wealth, reputation, and position. So he says, We've been called by God to serve our neighbor, and it's going to require sacrifice. Taking care of our neighbor's physical needs might require a sacrifice of money. TAKING CARE OF OUR NEIGHBORS' SPIRITUAL NEEDS BY SHARING THE GOSPEL WITH THEM MIGHT HARM OUR REPUTATION. A WILLINGNESS TO SERVE CHRIST, KNOWING THAT IT'S GOING TO BRING HARDSHIP AND PAIN INTO OUR LIVES. WHAT DO LUTHERANS CALL THAT? I THINK WHAT HUNTER IS DESCRIBING IS THE THEOLOGY OF THE CROSS. SO, AGAIN, TO SUMMARIZE HIS ARGUMENT, IT IS ONLY THE GOSPEL THAT CAN CREATE FAITH. BUT WE NEED TO DO A BETTER JOB AT WINNING AN AUDIENCE FOR THE GOSPEL. AND WE DO THAT IN THE WAY WE CONDUCT OUR LIVES. THAT LIKE THE EARLY CHURCH, WE IMITATE THEIR COMPASSION, THEIR GENEROSITY, THEIR HOSPITALITY. YOU HEAR IT IN SCRIPTURE. IN THE BOOK OF ACTS, WE'RE TOLD ABOUT HOW THERE WERE NO CHRISTIANS IN THE EARLY CHURCH THAT REALLY WERE EVER IN NEED. The Christian church just made sure that, that they were taken care of. But it's not just at the time of the apostles that we see this. You see this in the writings of the early Christian church. Let's go to the end of the first century. Here's a quote by Clement, the bishop of Rome. He's writing at a time when all the apostles, with maybe the exception of St. John, are dead. HE'S DESCRIBING THE WAY HE'S ENCOURAGING HIS CHRISTIAN FOLLOWERS TO LIVE. HE SAYS, THE CHRISTIAN IMPOVERISHES HIMSELF OUT OF LOVE SO THAT HE IS CERTAIN HE MAY NEVER OVERLOOK A BROTHER IN NEED, ESPECIALLY IF HE KNOWS HE CAN BEAR THE POVERTY BETTER THAN HIS BROTHER. HE, LIKEWISE, CONSIDERS THE PAIN OF ANOTHER AS HIS OWN PAIN, AND IF HE SUFFERS ANY HARDSHIP BECAUSE OF HAVING GIVEN OUT OF HIS OWN POVERTY, HE DOES NOT COMPLAIN. THE GENEROSITY OF CHRISTIANS IN THE EARLY CHRISTIAN CHURCH Let's fast forward over about a century to the late, late second century. Uh, Lucian of Samasata is not a Christian. He's a pagan. He's a Syrian satirist and the play that he wrote, he just ridicules Christians. But it's fascinating. Listen to how he perfectly summarizes what Christians believe and then accurately summarizes what the logical conclusion of that belief is. He says the poor fools these Christians the poor fools have persuaded themselves above all that they will live forever How stupid to think that they're going to go to heaven. So what's the logical conclusion? From which it follows that they fear not death and many of them willingly undergo imprisonment They're perfectly happy to be persecuted by the Roman Empire because they know that they're going to live forever in heaven Moreover, their first lawgiver, that crucified Sophist Jesus, taught them that they are all brothers of one another. So they're not just friends, they're not just acquaintances, they view one another as kin. What's the logical result? So they despise all things equally and regard them as common property. The churches, the Christians at the end of the second century, they don't view their possessions as mine, they view it as ours. 'Cause accordingly, if any quack or trickster who can press his advantage comes along, he can acquire great wealth in a very short time by imposing on simple minded people. He says it's easy for con men to take advantage of Christians because they are so quick to share their wealth with anyone in need. Let's fast forward two more centuries. Emperor Julian, sometimes known as the apostate, uh, he only ruled for three years. Um, The Roman Empire is coming apart at the seams at this time. Julian thought that to keep it together, uh, they need to restore Hellenistic culture, including emperor worship. He tried. He eventually realized he couldn't do it. He can't. Squash christianity He actually even kind of quasi rebelled the temple of jerusalem trying to get judaism to replace Christianity, but he eventually wrote a letter to one of his priests just saying we're never going to get rid of the christians Here's why these impious Galileans not only feed their own poor but ours also welcoming them into their agape they attract them as children are attracted to cakes THESE HATED GALILEANS DEVOTE THEMSELVES TO CHARITY. HE GOES ON TO SAY THEY SPREAD THE TABLES FOR OUR INDIGENT, FOR OUR POOR. THIS IS THE END OF THE FOURTH CENTURY, AND THE EARLY CHRISTIAN CHURCH IS STILL BEING MARKED AS PEOPLE WHO ARE INCREDIBLY GENEROUS, INCREDIBLY HOSPITABLE. THAT CONVERTED NOBODY, BUT IT GAVE CHRISTIANS OPPORTUNITIES TO SHARE THE GOSPEL WHICH THEN DID, THROUGH WHICH THE HOLY SPIRIT DID DO HIS GOOD WORK. JESUS HIMSELF ENCOURAGED THIS. Uh, MATTHEW 5, I I, I BELIEVE, MIGHT BE ONE OF THE MOST COMMONLY quoted SCRIPTURE PASSAGES uh, IN STATE OF THE UNION ADDRESSES, BECAUSE THERE'S BEEN A WHOLE HOST OF PRESIDENTS, TRUMP, REAGAN, KENNEDY, um, WHO REFERRED TO AMERICA AS THIS BEAUTIFUL CITY ON A HILL. WHEN JESUS SPOKE OF THE CITY ON THE HILL, HE WAS NEVER TALKING ABOUT A NATION OR A FORM OF GOVERNMENT. HE WAS TALKING ABOUT THE CHURCH that the church would be this beautiful entity um, that others would be drawn to and attracted to. Jesus concludes this portion of Scripture by saying, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. No, Jesus encourages not, not good deeds for good deeds' sake, but good deeds so that others try and find out what it is that makes you tick. Then you can tell them, I... I live the way I do because I know the Savior that I do. I think this needs to be something moving forward. In the generations to come, by the power of the Spirit, we will strive to create a compelling Christian community, one that even the spiritually dead can perceive as beautiful and beneficial. How does this play out in 21st century America? I mean, this isn't 2nd century Rome. Uh, The early Christians built hospitals. There's a hospital now in every small town. The early Christians took care of the poor. We have government programs that take care of the poor. I don't know exactly how this is going to play out in your local community. I would encourage for you to think it through. If you haven't done so yet, pick this book up um, by the Commission on Special Ministries called Love and Action. IT LAYS OUT DIFFERENT WAYS YOUR CONGREGATION MIGHT uh, CONDUCT COMPASSION MINISTRY uh, IN AN EFFORT TO BE A LIGHT ON A HILL, TO BE THIS ATTRACTIVE FORCE OF CHRIST'S LOVE, WHICH DRAWS PEOPLE TO YOU SO THAT YOU WIN AN AUDIENCE FOR SHARING THE GOSPEL. ANOTHER KEY QUESTION, WHAT ARE THE SPIRITUAL BLESSINGS AND BENEFITS That a congregation can offer that cannot be obtained online i asked that earlier if someone can get a good sermon online and if they can get good music online what do they need you for i think there's two answers to that question the first answer is the sacrament Uh, someone says well i I don't need to go to church to be close to god i can i can go up and to go for a walk in nature and say say a prayer or read my bible true can you touch god there In the sacrament you partake of the true body and true blood of the savior for the forgiveness of sins it's an incredible spiritual blessing that you cannot get on your own it requires you to be part of a body of believers so i think that's part of our answer Um, mainly an answer for people who are in our church and thinking of leaving what about people who are outside of our church what do we offer i just talked about it earlier uh, I'M SORRY, SUMMARIZE, WE WILL BETTER TEACH AND EMPHASIZE THE BLESSING OF HOLY COMMUNION NOT ENJOYED APART FROM THE ASSEMBLY OF THE SAINTS. BUT THE OTHER THING THAT WE CAN OFFER THAT YOU CAN'T GET ONLINE IS CHRISTIAN COMMUNITY. WHEN YOU le- READ THROUGH THE Pauline EPISTLES, IT'S ABOUT 94 TIMES THAT PAUL USES uh, THIS reflexive PRONOUN, THE ONE ANOTHER PASSAGES, IN WHICH HE MAKES IT CLEAR that, that, THAT THE CARE WE RECEIVE IN A CHURCH, IT'S NOT JUST FROM PASTOR TO MEMBER, IT'S FROM MEMBER TO MEMBER. THAT WE ARE NOT WIRED TO EXIST AS RUGGED INDIVIDUALS, WE NEED ONE ANOTHER. BROTHERS AND SISTERS IN CHRIST in THE CHURCH, THEY NEED EACH OTHER FOR ENCOURAGEMENT, FOR TEACHING, uh, uh, TO COMFORT THEM IN DIFFICULT TIMES, TO ADMONISH THEM when NECESSARY, TO PROVIDE ACCOUNTABILITY. I think we need to promote Christian community better within our our congregations. This, This common culture that is among us where you show up for church two minutes before the service starts and you're gone the second the benediction is said so that you don't really know anybody in your church. You might know their names and say hi, but they're really not anything more than acquaintances. That's not gonna help moving forward. I WANT TO PLAY ANOTHER VIDEO CLIP FOR YOU. THIS IS FROM A CANADIAN TELEVISION STATION. THE CANADIAN CHURCH uh, IS IN EVEN WORSE SHAMBLES THAN THE AMERICAN CHURCH, BUT THIS uh, uh, TELEVISION SHOW DID AN EXPOSÉ ON ONE CHURCH WHICH IS REALLY DOING WELL AT RETAINING ESPECIALLY YOUNG PEOPLE. IN THIS uh, INTERVIEW, I WANT YOU TO LISTEN FOR WHAT YOUNG PEOPLE SAY IS A REASON THEY GO TO CHURCH AND WHAT ISN'T IMPORTANT FOR KEEPING THEM IN CHURCH.
2: Though the numbers vary, the research is clear. With each generation, church attendance is in decline. Laura Bronson and Danielle Carabin are part of that generation, too, but only in age. They're still in church, and it's because of one thing, community. I'd say just, like, the friends that are there,
3: and also the experiences of, like, just getting tight with God. I love the people who go to my church. Um, I love that you get to see old people and young people, and I love that everyone usually goes out to eat afterwards.
2: For the goodbye generation, the need to feel like part of a family, Soller says, trumps just about everything else. All these churches
3: are trying to fix it, you know, we're going to get a different music pastor, we're going to get more drums or more guitars, and they're totally missing the point because they actually don't care what happens for that one hour. They may care some, but what does it mean for the rest of the week? People want to, like, feel loved and accepted. We focus so much on the Sunday, but it's like the Sunday morning is, is like 1% to, like, being a Christian.
1: Says you, we're fo- so focused on Sunday morning. If we can just fix what we do on Sunday morning, more contemporary music, whatever. And there's was the pastor who's saying that's not it. What you need to do is create a Christian community that affects your members, the other r- rest of the elders throughout the course of the course of the week. This is the way we typically think. Um, of how conduct ministry we think corporately we think of connecting groups we're gonna try and connect our congregation uh, to a a group within the community so if we just have the right building that will attract the community or if we open up a preschool that'll attract the community or if we change our worship style that will attract the community THE REASON WE'VE THOUGHT THAT WAY, KIND OF WHAT I COULD CALL CORPORATE OUTREACH, IS THAT FOR A LONG TIME IT WORKED, AND THE REASON IT WORKED IS BECAUSE THERE WAS KIND OF A NORMAL EXPECTATION THAT PEOPLE WOULD GO TO CHURCH. THAT'S CHANGED. LET ME GIVE YOU AN ANALOGY THAT'S KIND OF WEAK. IMAGINE YOU SAY TO ME, JOHN, I WANT TO CONVINCE YOU TO TAKE UP BOATING. I GET WHY YOU WOULDN'T LIKE THIS BOAT. THIS BOAT IS is OLD-FASHIONED, THIS BOAT IS STODGY, BUT HERE I HAVE A NEW BOAT. A CONTEMPORARY BOAT. THIS IS A BOAT FOR PEOPLE WHO DON'T KNOW THEY LIKE TO BOAT. THAT STRATEGY MIGHT WORK IF I WAS INCLINED TO CONSIDER BOATING. BUT WHAT IF I THOUGHT THAT BOATING WAS IRRELEVANT, WAS A COMPLETE WASTE OF TIME, OR IF I EVEN HAD NEGATIVE CONNOTATIONS ABOUT BOATING? YOU TELLING ME YOU HAVE A BETTER BOAT DOESN'T DO ANYTHING. Now say that you, you're my next-door neighbor and, and you take time to befriend me and, and we get to know each other and we're, we're close. And you say, John, I, I want to take you out on my boat this weekend. And I say, well, you know, I'm not really interested in boat. I don't really see the point. John, this is important to me. I, I, I feel so much peace and tranquility when I'm out in the water. Will you, will you give this a try? I'll give it a try because of the connection that I have with you. RATHER TRYING TO CONVINCE OUR COMMUNITY THAT WE HAVE A BETTER BOAT, GIVE US A TRY. THAT WAS FINE WHEN AMERICANS THOUGHT THAT CHRISTIANITY WAS A GOOD THING. AMERICANS DON'T CARE ABOUT CHRISTIANITY ANYMORE. SO OUTREACH IN THE FUTURE IS GOING TO REQUIRE US TO FOCUS NOT ON CONNECTING GROUP TO GROUP, BUT CONNECTING PERSON TO PERSON, EQUIPPING OUR MEMBERS TO GET INTO THE LIVES OF THEIR UNBELIEVING NEXT-DOOR NEIGHBOR AND COWORKER uh, AND TRYING TO SHARE THEIR FAITH. THIS HAS TO BE SOMETHING AUTHENTIC. Uh, um, I, I THINK SOMETHING WE COULD THINK OF MAYBE IS IN TERMS OF HOSPITALITY or EVANGELISM. HOSPITALITY ISN'T THE SAME THING AS ENTERTAINING IN THE BIBLE. ENTERTAINING, uh, THAT'S ALL ABOUT YOU. LET ME SHOW YOU WHAT A NICE uh, MEAL I CAN PREPARE. HOSPITALITY IS ABOUT BUILDING RELATIONSHIPS. In, IN THE LETTER TO THE HEBREWS WE READ, DO NOT FORGET TO SHOW HOSPITALITY TO STRANGERS phylos that you hear phylos there, love, brotherly love, affection. I think we need to teach our people to practice hospitality, to build true friendships with the unchurched people that God brings into their lives. Uh, there's a fascinating parable in, in, in Luke 16. Uh, Jesus tells the story of this, this servant. He's, a, he's basically an accountant who knows that his master is going to fire him. AND SO, WHAT DOES THAT ACCOUNTANT DO? HE BEGINS TO GO TO ALL THE PEOPLE WHO OWE HIS MASTER MONEY, AND HE STARTS SLASHING THEIR DEBTS. WHY IS HE DOING THIS? HE'S TRYING TO ENDEAR HIMSELF TO THEM. HE'S TRYING TO MAKE FRIENDS, SO THAT WHEN HE'S FIRED, POSSIBLY THEY'LL, they'll HELP TAKE CARE OF HIM. JESUS CONCLUDES THAT PARABLE BY SAYING, THE UNBELIEVERS IN THE WORLD ARE SO shrewd, BETTER THAN BELIEVERS, IN USING MONEY TO ACCOMPLISH THEIR GOALS. AND THEN JESUS SAYS SOMETHING FASCINATING. HE SAYS, I TELL YOU, USE WORLDLY WEALTH, LITERALLY mammon. SO NOT JUST YOUR MONEY, BUT but, but ALL YOUR POSSESSIONS. USE WORLDLY WEALTH TO GAIN FRIENDS FOR YOURSELVES. WHY? SO THAT IF SOMETHING BAD HAPPENS TO ME, I CAN RELY ON THEM? JESUS SAYS, NO, USE YOUR WEALTH TO GAIN FRIENDS WITH YOURSELVES, FOR YOURSELVES. BECAUSE YOU KNOW THERE IS AN ETERNAL DWELLING PLACE. PRACTICE HOSPITALITY. BE WILLING TO USE YOUR MONEY THAT WAY uh, SO THAT YOU CAN TRY AND HAVE OPPORTUNITIES uh, TO SHARE YOUR FAITH, TO WIN AUDIENCES FOR THE GOSPEL. Final video clip. This one comes from the Gospel Coalition. don't know if you ever heard of them. It's a large group of uh, evangelical pastors that have set some ambitious goals to try and turn around the decline that's experiencing in that church. Like one of their goals is they're attempting to uh, triple the number of Christians in New York City over the course of the next decade. Um, they have a series of training videos. The cornerstone of their evangelism program moving forward is training their members to practice hospitality. Listen to this.
3: So there's a really strong connection between the two ideas of hospitality and evangelism. In fact, my my personal experience has been that where people do hospitality well, they tend to do evangelism well. And where people aren't very hospitable, they don't tend to do evangelism well. It's not that the plane ride home next to the guy that you get to share the gospel with isn't something that's right and good and, and beautiful. But to over a period of time have someone in your home That you're sharing your life with sharing the gospel with sharing your good food with and like there's something about hospitality that if you think about it, like God thinks so highly of hospitality that he actually says that to be an elder in a local congregation, you've got to be hospitable so that that when God's saying the kind of men that I want leading my church, the kind of men that I'm going to use to make my bride healthy, to help in her sanctification, to grow her into the fullness of what God has. As for her in Christ they're gonna to need to be able to show hospitality and so we, we see a strong correlation even if you listen to people's testimonies in people who are willing to get into their lives and invite them into their lives and uh, people becoming Christians
1: Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with mailing out 10,000 postcards or running Facebook ads or running a preschool or putting a large LED sign out on some public highway promoting your church. I'm saying that in the direction American culture is moving, I don't know if those would have as much of an impact if you would just teach your members, maybe just start with your church council, your pastor, and your elders, to set aside one day every week TO INVITE AN UNCHURCHED PERSON FROM THE NEIGHBORHOOD OVER TO HAVE A MEAL WITH THEM. TO START TO INVEST IN OTHER PEOPLE'S LIVES TO BEFRIEND THEM SO THAT YOU MIGHT, WITH YOUR GENEROSITY AND HOSPITALITY, WIN AN OPPORTUNITY AND AUDIENCE uh, TO SHARE THE GOSPEL. Uh, This is going to be a big emphasis in congregational services moving forward. I won't talk about all these programs because they'll be in our report tomorrow. Uh, But, for example, the C-18 program, the cornerstone of that was training members to produce their own personal mission field lists. So, again, yes, we did some mass mailings, but what we really wanted to do is to have congregational members uh, think about the unchurched people that they knew and invite them to Christmas Eve. We sent out an exit survey. We only heard from about 24% of our congregation's But of those, there were 118, that's 9% of our Wells congregation said they had the highest attendance they've ever had from Christmas Eve. And I've heard from a bunch of them. There's a bunch of churches that haven't had adult confirmations in years that have had some. It's because they equipped their members um, FOR THIS TYPE OF HOSPITALITY, INVITATIONAL EVANGELISM. NOT JUST EVANGELISM, BUT ASSIMILATION. I THINK WE, we NEED TO, uh, uh, CHURCHES IN THE WELLS NEED TO THINK ABOUT ESTABLISHING SMALL GROUPS. AND TO SET AS THE PRIMARY GOAL, KNITTING PEOPLE TOGETHER IN CHRISTIAN COMMUNITIES. SO YOU CAN HAVE IT BE A BIBLE STUDY GROUP, BUT IT'S PERFECTLY FINE IF IT'S A SERVICE GROUP OR, or A RECREATIONAL FELLOWSHIP. EVERY CHURCH ALREADY HAS SMALL GROUPS. YOU HAVE FOUR GUYS WHO GET TOGETHER ON FRIDAY NIGHT FOR BEER AND SHEEP'S HEAD. YOU'VE GOT SIX LADIES WHO GET TOGETHER ON THE SECOND SATURDAY OF EVERY MONTH TO DO WHATEVER LADIES DO ON THE SECOND SATURDAY OF EVERY MONTH. I'M NOT PRIVY TO THAT, to that INFORMATION. YOU ALREADY HAVE SMALL GROUPS, ORGANIZING THEM IN YOUR CHURCH uh, um, SO THAT THEY MIGHT BE USED TO KNIT THE BODY OF CHRIST TOGETHER. And finally, this one-on-one thing when it comes to delinquency. Uh, Again, we approach delinquency corporately. Almost every church in here can tell me what their church attendance was on any given Sunday. I don't care about that. I want the names of every member who weren't there. AND I WANT THERE TO BE AN ELDER, SOMEONE WHO HAS A SENSE OF PERSONAL RESPONSIBILITY FOR THAT INDIVIDUAL uh, SO THAT THEY GO AFTER THEM WITH LOVE. THAT'S THE WHOLE FOCUS OF THE WELCOME HOME PROGRAM, WHICH WE'LL TALK ABOUT TOMORROW. PUT THIS ALL TOGETHER, MOVING FORWARD IN THE GENERATIONS TO COME, BY THE POWER OF THE SPIRIT, WE WILL HELP OUR MEMBERS TO SEE THE FACE OF CHRIST IN THEIR NEIGHBOR. WE WILL ENCOURAGE THEM TO BUILD AUTHENTIC FRIENDSHIPS WITH THOSE CURRENTLY OUTSIDE THE CHURCH HOSPITALITY WILL BE A CORE VALUE AMONG THE, THAT'S WHAT THE WELLS IS GOING TO BE KNOWN FOR. WE WILL DO WHATEVER IS NECESSARY TO KNIT OUR MEMBERS INTO SOMETHING MORE THAN ACQUAINTANCES. THEY WILL HAVE A FAMILY. Um, THE HOLY SPIRIT ISN'T SLOPPY WITH WORDS. SO WHEN HE KEEPS CALLING US BROTHERS AND SISTERS AND FAMILY, IT'S NOT BECAUSE HE'S BEING SENTIMENTAL OR SAPPY. THAT IS HOW HE WANTS US TO THINK. IF YOUR BROTHER WENT INTO THE HOSPITAL, WHAT WOULD YOU DO? You can go and visit them, right? You should be willing to do the exact same thing for every single member in your church. Now, that might be practic- not impractical. If you have a church of 400 and, and Eunice goes in to get her, uh, her hip replaced, you probably don't want 400 people tra- traipsing through Eunice's hospital room. You should have 400 people who want to. And you should have a system in place so that Eunice is visited regularly, and her family taken care of while she's recovering. We're going to knit our people into a, into more than acquaintances, more than friends. We're going to be a family, and we will zealously, almost recklessly, pursue the straying, leaving the other ninety-nine behind. Final key question in the generations to come: How do we position ourselves strategically to conduct the most aggressive ministry possible? Let me ask it another way, because that's a bit obtuse. There was a time when culture dictated that we needed one church every 4 to 6 miles. That's not the case any longer. What best serves Christ's mission of reaching the lost now? You could same say the same thing about schools. There was a time when the one church, one school paradigm was pretty feasible. Not so much anymore. What are we going to do about this? WE HAVE MANY, 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 MANY EXAMPLES IN THE WELLS. where IN A SMALL GEOGRAPHIC AREA, LET'S SAY EIGHT MILES BY EIGHT MILES, YOU HAVE FOUR, FIVE, SIX CONGREGATIONS. MAYBE THREE OR FOUR OF THEM ARE STRUGGLING AND ON THEIR WAY DOWN. IS IT BEST, DOES IT SERVE THE KINGDOM BEST FOR THOSE CONGREGATIONS TO REMAIN SEPARATE? OR MIGHT IT BE BETTER FOR THEM TO MERGE? There's an economy of scale in running any operation, and when you merge, you bring together a diversity of talents and gifts. It's possible that if those churches would merge, they might be able to conduct ministry in a more aggressive manner. Now, there's two big obstacles to getting over it, to to making this happen. It's hard to convince people to do this, first of all, because of emotional irrationalism. AND SO YOU HAVE SOME GUY SAY, WE we CAN'T GET RID OF THIS CHURCH. MY my GRANDPA JOE HELPED BUILD THE STEEPLE ON THIS CHURCH. WE COULDN'T POSSIBLY SELL IT. THAT'S EMOTIONAL IRRATIONALISM. AND I, I UNDERSTAND THE SENTIMENTALITY, BUT SOMEONE NEEDS TO EXPLAIN TO THAT gentleman. LET ME GET THIS RIGHT. WHEN YOUR GRANDPA JOE IS RAISED FROM THE DEAD ON THE LAST DAY AND IS ABOUT TO GO TO HEAVEN, YOU THINK HE'S GOING TO SAY, WHERE DID THE STEEPLE GO THAT I BUILT? THE VERY STEEPLE, WHICH, BY THE WAY, THE ANGELS ARE ABOUT TO SET ON FIRE. (laughs) WE NEED TO HELP PEOPLE OVERCOME THAT EMOTIONAL IRRATIONALISM THAT GETS IN THE WAY OF of THINKING STRATEGICALLY. THE SECOND THING THAT CAN GET IN THE WAY IS JUST PURE SELFISHNESS. I'M COMFORTABLE in IN THIS CHURCH. I WOULD NOT BE COMFORTABLE IF I WAS FORCED TO JOIN OR MERGE WITH ANOTHER CONGREGATION. WE'RE NOT GOING TO ANSWER THIS QUESTION HERE, BUT IT'S SOMETHING WE NEED TO THINK ABOUT. I'LL TALK ABOUT TOMORROW HOW WE'RE WORKING IN CONGREGATIONAL SERVICES WITH THE CIRCUIT PASTORS TO HELP CONGREGATIONS THINK ABOUT THIS PROACTIVELY. THE NEED TO HAVE CHURCHES EVERY THREE, FOUR MILES, THAT WAS NECESSARY WHEN WE GOT TO CHURCH BY HORSE AND buggy. THAT IS NO LONGER THE CASE. MIGHT IT BE A BETTER STRATEGIC MOVE FOR THOSE CONGREGATIONS TO MERGE AND CONDUCT MINISTRY TOGETHER. IN THE GENERATIONS TO COME, BY THE POWER OF THE SPIRIT, WE WILL PLACE THE MISSION OF CHRIST AHEAD OF PERSONAL PREFERENCES. WE WILL VIEW INSTITUTIONS PROPERLY AS THE MEANS TO THE END, NOT THE END OF ITSELF. THE END IS THE GLORY OF JESUS CHRIST. THE EXISTENCE OF YOUR CONGREGATION IS A MEANS TO THE END. IT'S NOT THE END ITSELF. WHEN combat COMBINING RESOURCES SEEMS LIKE THE BEST WAY TO SERVE THE GOSPEL, WE WILL DO SO. BROTHERS, WHAT I'VE BEEN des- DESCRIBING is, IS EFFORTS TO INCREASE OUR GOSPEL, uh, um, our gospel INTENTIONS, TO TRY AND uh, REACH THE LOST, RETAIN THE STRAYING, FEEDING THE FAITHFUL. WHAT IS THIS GOING TO DO TO OUR CHURCH BODY? WELL, THAT'S UP TO THE HOLY SPIRIT. THE HOLY SPIRIT IS THE ONLY ONE WHO CAN GRANT STATISTICAL OR SPIRITUAL GROWTH. BUT WHAT I WANT TO HIGHLIGHT IS THE HOLY SPIRIT WOULDN'T HAVE TO DO ANYTHING LIKE RADICAL FOR this, the, the, de- THE DECLINE IN WELLS TO TURN AROUND. Um, LET'S SAY THAT THROUGH OUR INCREASED MINISTRY EFFORTS, WE WERE ABLE TO CUT LOSSES BY 20% SO THAT WITH BETTER ELDER WORK, WITH MORE APOLOGETICS, WE WEREN'T LOSING 8,000 PEOPLE OUT THE BACK DOOR EVERY YEAR. WE WERE LOSING 6,400. IT'S STILL 6,400, BUT BETTER THAN 8,000. And let's say we got the ratio of worshipers to adult confirmants, which currently in the Wells is 45 to 1. For every 45 people in worship, that church will have one adult confirmation. Let's say we could get that to 29 to 1. Shouldn't seem that hard. If 29 different people are practicing hospitality, inviting their friends to church, you would think maybe um, the Holy Spirit would lead one person to join. If we would do that, we instantly achieve stability. By the way, we don't need to hit these numbers for five years. IF WE WOULD ACHIEVE THOSE NUMBERS IN FIVE YEARS, TWENTY YEARS FROM NOW, WE'D ACTUALLY BE ABOUT 20,000 PEOPLE LARGER THAN WE ARE NOW. A LITTLE MORE AGGRESSIVE, LET'S SAY THE HOLY SPIRIT, THROUGH OUR EFFORTS, CUT OUR LOSSES BY 33%, AND WE ACHIEVED AN ADULT CONFIRMATION RATIO uh, TO WORSHIPER RATIO OF 24 TO 1. IN 20 YEARS, WE WOULD ALMOST BE AS LARGE AS WE WERE AT OUR HISTORIC HIGH. Again, this is up to the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit does work through us. So let's increase our efforts as much as we humanly can and pray that he would bless them with those types of things. Doing the things that I've asked is hard. (laughs) Merging churches, practicing hospitality, practicing generosity. That's why we have to close by talking about what's our motivation for doing all this. Our motivation isn't this. It's not fear. We CAN'T BE MOTIVATED BY BEING AFRAID OF OUR CHURCH BEING IN DECLINE OUR MOTIVATION CAN'T BE GUILT Uh, HERE'S A GREAT BOOK RECLAIMING GLORY BY MARK CLIFTON TALKING ABOUT TRYING TO GET A MISSION MINDSET IN YOUR CHURCH HE WRITES TELLING THE ELDERLY SAINTS OF THE CHURCH THAT IF THEY DON'T CHANGE THEIR CHURCH WILL DIE MAY CHANGE BEHAVIOR IN THE SHORT TERM THOUGH THIS IS EVEN DOUBTFUL BUT IT WILL NEVER WARM THEIR HEARTS TOWARDS THE GOSPEL AND MAKE LONG-TERM CHANGES IN THEIR LIVES In THE LIFE OF THE CHURCH SO HE SAYS GUILT ISN'T ISN'T GOOD MOTIVATOR LONG TERM SO WE'RE NOT GOING TO USE GUILT I DON'T EVEN THINK THAT'S WHAT MOTIVATES US Uh, WHAT IS THE GREAT COMMISSION LAW OR GOSPEL IF YOU SAY IT'S LAW I WON'T QUIBBLE WITH YOU BECAUSE IT IS AN IMPERATIVE IT'S GOD PLACING AN EXPECTATION ON US IT MIGHT BE BETTER TO UNDERSTAND that IT AS ONE OF THOSE unique, imp- UNIQUE IMPERATIVES THAT YOU FIND IN SCRIPTURE WHERE GOD ASKS SOMEONE TO DO SOMETHING IMPOSSIBLE AND THEN FOR HIS GLORY IN THE COMMAND, HE ALSO GIVES THEM THE ABILITY TO OBEY IT. LAZARUS, COME OUT. WELL, HE'S DEAD FOR FOUR DAYS. BUT IN THE IMPERATIVE, GOD ALSO GAVE LAZARUS THE ABILITY TO OBEY THE COMMAND FOR HIS GLORY. You COULD VIEW THE GREAT COMMISSION THAT WAY WHAT YOU CAN'T VIEW THE GREAT COMMISSION AS IS GOSPEL IT'S BOOKENDED BY GOSPEL BUT THE GREAT COMMISSION ITSELF IS NOT GOSPEL IT SIMPLY TELLS THE CHURCH THIS IS WHAT YOUR MISSION IS BUT IT DOES NOT GIVE US THE MOTIVATION FOR THAT MISSION WHERE DO WE GET THE MOTIVATION JESUS TOLD US ON MONDAY THURSDAY EVENING HE SAID THAT THE ONE WHO DOES WHAT I ASK WHO KEEPS MY COMMANDS is who, he who loves me. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. So if Jesus has asked us to do hard things to meet the challenges for the generations to come, if we're going to do that, we need to love him and love him more. Well, how do you love Jesus more? Jesus explained that as well. In the account, when he's meeting with uh, Simon the Pharisee, and while they're having dinner, somehow this this woman of ill repute makes their way in. Uh, she dumps perfume on Jesus' feet. She's just bawling. She's wiping his feet with her hair. Simon just thinks that this is disgraceful and wants it to stop. Jesus turns and he tells them uh, tells them a story of a moneylender who forgave two debts of two individuals. One debt was ten times bigger than the other. And Jesus asked, Simon, who do you think would love the moneylender more? And Simon answered, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. I suppose. The point is that those who love Jesus the most are the ones who know how much he's been forgiven. If we're going to be motivated to meet the challenges before us in the generations to come, WE NEED THIS MOTIVATION THAT COMES FROM KNOWING OF THE IMMENSITY AND THE INTIMACY OF OUR FORGIVENESS. THE IMMENSITY OF OUR FORGIVENESS. WHEN WE THINK OF THE PRICE PAID FOR OUR FORGIVENESS, IT'S REALLY EASY TO GO TO THE PHYSICAL TORTURE, THE CROSS, THE THORNS, THE NAILS. BROTHERS, THAT WAS THE EASY PART. CRUCIFIXION WAS COMMON. THE REAL TORTURE THAT PAID FOR OUR SINS WAS THE emotional and spiritual pain that Jesus felt. There is pain when a relationship is broken. That pain is directly proportional to the duration and the closeness of that relationship. So let's say there's there's many of you whom I don't know. And one of you comes up to me sometime later this evening, and you said, Pastor Hine, I have measured you and find you wanting. I want nothing to do with you. That's actually going to hurt. And it'll bother me as I'm driving back for six hours to Milwaukee. But I'll be okay by the time I hit lacrosse (laughs) because I haven't known you that long. AND WE WEREN'T THAT CLOSE. NOW THERE ARE PEOPLE HERE WHO I'VE BEEN FRIENDS WITH SINCE WE WERE KIDS, WHEN WE WERE YOUNG AND DUMB, NOW WE'RE JUST DUMB. (laughs) BEEN FRIENDS WITH FOR A LONG TIME. IMAGINE ONE OF THOSE PEOPLE WOULD COME UP TO ME AND SAY, YEAH, JOHN, I'VE DECIDED I'M DONE WITH YOU. I DON'T EVER WANT TO SEE YOU AGAIN. THAT WOULD HURT ME FOR MONTHS, TAKE ME A YEAR OR TWO TO GET OVER. Now imagine I drive the six hours home, and when I get there, there on the front lawn are all my belongings packed up and my wife standing there with divorce papers. John, I'm done with you. I never want to see you again. You have unmade me as a man. I will never know another day of joy or fulfillment as long as I'm on this earth because I'm so close to her. AND HAVE BEEN THAT WAY FOR 25 YEARS. THAT'S ONLY 25 YEARS. FROM ALL ETERNITY, THE SON KNEW THE ADORATION AND AFFECTION AND ACCLAMATION OF THE FATHER. THEY WERE TIGHTER THAN ANY HUSBAND AND WIFE, CLOSER THAN ANY PARENT OR CHILD, PERFECTLY UNITED IN MIND AND HEART, Until one Friday, Jesus took all our guilt, all our failure, and he put it on his shoulders. And he experiences spiritual and psychological torture. He doesn't yell out, my head, my head, or my hands, my hands. He yells out, my God, my God. He can't even call him Father. That is an... UNIMAGINABLE SACRIFICE JESUS KNEW PAIN THAT THE PEOPLE IN HELL DON'T EVEN KNOW BECAUSE THEY WERE NEVER THAT CLOSE TO THE FATHER TO BEGIN WITH AS WE GROW IN OUR APPRECIATION OF THE IMMENSITY OF OUR FORGIVENESS WE GROW IN OUR LOVE FOR JESUS CHRIST THE IMMENSITY AND ALSO THE INTIMACY You heard President Schrader read Isaiah 6. You know the story well. Isaiah is going to the temple. He gets to the top of Mount Zion. There he sees the Lord in all his holiness, massive robe, massive train. The seraphim flying around him singing, holy, holy, holy is so loud. Isaiah feels the ground quaking. Confronted with the holiness of God he's terrified He instantly starts thinking of sins and he focuses on specific ones for some reason Sins of the mouth I'm a man of unclean lips. Some commentators think that before Isaiah was a prophet. He was a priest So maybe Isaiah is thinking of naughty things. He shouldn't have said but said I can relate to that Maybe Isaiah is thinking of good things. He should have said Witnessing to a next door neighbor, going after a delinquent member, but he failed to say. Doesn't matter. He's terrified. His lips are bothering him. God responds with intimacy. He tells an angel, Take a coal from the altar, and he draws near to Isaiah's lips. As Isaiah sees that coal getting closer and closer, what do you think is going through his head? This is going to hurt. But it's what I deserve. I've sinned against you with my lips shut. Just w- lips, Lord, just weld them shut. But as is always God's modus operandi, that which looks horrible, He uses for incredible good. You see that at the cross. That which looks horrible, He uses for incredible good. WE WILL SEE IT IN OUR CHURCH BODY. THIS DECLINE, WHICH LOOKS HORRIBLE, HE WILL USE FOR OUR GOOD. HE WILL REFINE US AND GIVE US FOCUS. AND IT WAS TRUE WITH ISAIAH. IT LOOKS HORRIBLE. IT'S NOT. SEE THIS, COAL HAS TOUCHED YOUR LIPS, YOUR SIN IS atoned FOR, YOUR GUILT IS TAKEN AWAY. IT WAS INTIMATE FORGIVENESS, BECAUSE THAT WAS NOT ISRAEL AND GOD ON MOUNT ZION. IT WAS ONE-ON-ONE, ISAIAH AND GOD. GOD TOUCHES ISAIAH IN THE VERY PLACE WHICH IS BOTHERING ISAIAH. GOD SHOWS THAT SPECIFIC TYPE OF LOVE, FORGIVING THE SIN WHICH WAS KEEPING HIM AWAKE AT NIGHT. THIS INTIMATE FORGIVENESS OF GOD, IT'S TRANSFORMATIVE FOR ISAIAH. THE MEMBERS OF THE TRINITY BEGIN TO MUSE AMONGST THEMSELVES, WHOM SHALL I SEND AND WHO WILL GO FOR US? NOTE WHAT THE TRINITY DOES NOT SAY. GO WHERE? TO WHOM? TO SAY WHAT, AT WHAT FINANCIAL COST, AT WHAT PERSONAL RISK? GOD JUST SAYS, I HAVE A MISSION. AND ISAIAH IS MOTIVATED, LIKE A LITTLE KID IN FIRST GRADE WHO KNOWS THE ANSWER, HIS HAND IS UP. Ooh, ME, LORD, ME, SEND ME. THAT INTIMATE LOVE MOTIVATED ISAIAH TO MAKE THE SACRIFICES NECESSARY TO CARRY OUT AGGRESSIVE MINISTRY. AND MAYBE YOU'RE THINKING, WELL, I'D BE MOTIVATED, TOO, IF I GOT TO SAW GOD FACE-TO-FACE LIKE ISAIAH DID. BROTHERS, YOU HAVE IT BETTER THAN HE DID. THIS WHOLE ONE-ON-ONE INTERACTION, WHAT DO YOU THINK YOUR BAPTISM WAS? THAT WAS NOT GOD AND THE WORLD AT THE FONT. THAT WAS GOD MOVING TIME AND SPACE TO BRING YOU THERE Personally, it's an intimate love. Isaiah only knew the promise of grace. Every Easter, you celebrate the fulfillment of grace. Isaiah's lips are touched with a coal, a symbol of God's forgiveness. Your lips last night, you partook of the very body and blood which made that forgiveness possible. You have it better in Isaiah. As the intimacy and the incredible enormity of Christ's sacrifice sinks in, we grow in our love for him, and that's what gives us the motivation to meet the challenges that are set before us. I'm going to share with you one more book to encourage. THE GENIUS OF LUTHER'S THEOLOGY BY ROBERT KOLB AND CHARLES ARTRAND, WHO ARE uh, MISSOURI Synod PASTORS. HERE'S THE the SUBTITLE. A WITTENBERG WAY OF THINKING FOR THE CONTEMPORARY CHURCH. SO IN THIS BOOK, um, THEY APPLY LUTHERAN, CONFESSIONAL LUTHERAN THEOLOGY TO ALL THESE CHALLENGES THAT WE'VE BEEN TALKING ABOUT. I'M NOT GOING TO QUOTE FROM THE BOOK, BUT I WANT TO QUOTE A REVIEW THAT WAS GIVEN OF THE BOOK. One reviewer wrote, if hundreds of pastors all over the English-speaking world were to read and digest the message of the genius of Luther's theology, Christianity could, under God, experience another great awakening. Think of what he's saying. He's saying, I think Christianity could make a comeback. There could be a spiritual great awakening. But what's it going to take? It's going to take pastors approaching ministry Understanding confessional Lutheran theology. Who do you think wrote that review? Do you think it was President Matt Harrison, President of the Missouri Synod? President Mark Schrader, President of the Wells? That review was written by Dane Ortland, who's the vice president of Crossway Books. He is an evangelical. IT IS AN EVANGELICAL SAYING, IF CHRISTIANITY IS GOING TO MAKE A COMEBACK IN AMERICA, WE'D NEED CHURCHES TO BETTER UNDERSTAND LUTHERAN THEOLOGY. THE GIFT WE HAVE BEEN GIVEN, BROTHERS, WE UNDERSTAND THE UNCONDITIONAL GOSPEL. IT IS THE ONLY TOOL WHICH CAN CREATE FAITH, AND IT IS THE ONLY THING THAT CAN MOTIVATE US TO DO THE HARD THINGS NECESSARY TO MEET THE CHALLENGES that are before the church. Final thoughts. Will you read this passage with me, Isaiah fifty-five? My word will not return to me empty. I think some of the key the key words in that verse accomplish what I desire. What is IT THAT GOD DESIRES IT'S EASY FOR US TO LOSE SIGHT OF THAT Um, I DID THAT IN MY MINISTRY IT WAS uh, 1999 LENT I HAD BEEN ASSIGNED TO RESTART A MISSION IN CHARLESTON SOUTH CAROLINA SO I WAS SPENDING um, MY WEDNESDAY NIGHTS AND MY WEEKENDS IN LENT CANVASSING GOING DOOR TO DOOR INVITING PEOPLE TO uh, COME TO OUR EASTER SERVICE and I would typically take my wife or, or my son along. It helps to take a, a pretty girl or a cute kid along when you're going canvassing. Uh, this time, I just had my, my two and a half year old son, Caleb, big head of curly hair. I'd go up on people's doorsteps, and he'd hold on to my fingers. And I'd give my spiel every time, Hi, my name is John. I'm a new pastor in the area. I'd like to invite you to, Christmas, uh, or to, uh, to Easter. One of the doors I knocked on um, on that Saturday afternoon... Actually, it wasn't afternoon. It was 10 o'clock in the morning. Knocked on. And a guy who looked a lot like that came in answered. There's a lot of guys who look like that in Charleston, South Carolina, by the way. Uh, 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 just kind of your redneck with your wife beater on. <clears throat> um, tiny little guy. He was a short little guy, um, but very bold. And I could smell the alcohol coming off his breath at 10 o'clock in the morning. So I launched into my spiel. Hi, i um, a pa- uh, new pastor in the area. Like to Before I could even get like 10 words in, uh, he starts doing this with his finger. If you don't f-word, get off my effing porch. I will f-word throw you off my effing porch. Real angry, and I can, I can feel my two and a half year old son's fingers just clenching down as he's scared. What I wanted to say is, you are 120 pounds. I will break you over my knee and <laughs> suck the bourbon out of your bones convention just got dark. (laughs) Instead, I said, I see I've caught you at a bad time. (laughs) I'll come back later. And I came back that afternoon and without my son, and he still was not interested uh, in coming to Easter. And I had had a bad couple of weeks that length where I was just having trouble with my canvassing, Um, no one wanting to come, and some people being rude like that, to the point I was ready to be done. If you've ever been in a situation where you've tried to pound a church out of the dirt uh, that is not a job for the timid i was ready to be done and uh, my mission counselor at the time jim radloff he's now in heaven uh, he would call me up once a week and he could sense something was off so uh, he was at my house i think within two days um and, and and uh he took me out golfing and asked me what was going on he could tell what was going on AND I JUST EXPLAINED TO HIM, THE CANVASSING WAS NOT GOING WELL. I FEEL LIKE A FAILURE. Um, AND I TOLD HIM THE STORY OF THIS GUY. AND JIM SAID TO ME, THIS IS ABOUT ON THE FOURTH HOLE OF THE GOLF COURSE, JOHN, ON THE LAST DAY WHEN JESUS COMES AGAIN, ALL SORTS OF PEOPLE ARE GOING TO BE TRYING TO GIVE EXCUSES OF WHY HE SHOULDN'T JUDGE THEM. THAT MAN IS GOING TO SAY TO HIM, JESUS, YOU CAN'T SEND ME TO HELL. I NEVER HAD A CHANCE. AND JESUS IS GOING TO RESPOND TO HIM, I SENT YOU A PASTOR AND HIS SON, AND YOU TOLD THEM TO GET OFF YOUR F-WORD PORCH. AND then THEN JIM QUOTED THE PSALMIST, WHERE IT SAYS, GOD, YOU ARE RIGHT IN YOUR VERDICT AND JUSTIFIED WHEN YOU JUDGE. MY WORD WILL ACCOMPLISH WHAT I DESIRE. SEE, I WANTED GOD'S WORD TO ACCOMPLISH WHAT I DESIRED, WHICH IS THAT EVERY DOOR I KNOCKED ON LED TO SOMEONE JOINING MY CHURCH, THAT THROUGH MY MINISTRY EFFORTS THERE WOULD BE INCREDIBLE NUMERIC GROWTH. THAT'S WHAT I WANTED. BUT GOD'S DESIRE, FIRST AND FOREMOST, IS ALWAYS THE GLORY OF JESUS CHRIST. AND WHAT PASTOR RADLOFF POINTED OUT TO ME IS THAT MY EFFORTS STILL RESULTED IN JESUS CHRIST'S GLORY. BECAUSE ON JUDGMENT DAY, JESUS WILL BE GLORIFIED BY THE FACT THAT IN HIS MERCY, HE DID INDEED GIVE THAT MAN A CHANCE. HE'S JUSTIFIED IN HIS JUDGMENT. I BRING THIS UP BECAUSE WHENEVER THERE'S A PRESENTATION LIKE THIS, IT IS REALLY EASY TO GET CAUGHT UP IN THE NUMBERS. AND THE NUMBERS AREN'T UNIMPORTANT. SCRIPTURE MENTIONS NUMBERS. ABOUT 3,000 WERE SAVED ON THE DAY OF PENTECOST. WE'RE HERE TO MAKE DECISIONS. I SAID EARLIER, YOU CAN'T MAKE DECISIONS WITHOUT GOOD INFORMATION. BUT, BROTHERS, DO NOT LET THE NUMBERS CONSUME YOU. IF YOU ARE CONSUMED BY STATISTICAL GROWTH, IT ONLY LEADS TO ONE OF TWO PLACES. SINFUL PRIDE, IF YOU ACHIEVE IT, OR SOUL-CRUSHING, MINISTRY-ENDING DESPAIR, IF YOU DO NOT. THIS IS OUR MOTTO IN CONGREGATIONAL SERVICES. IF WE'RE DOING ALL WE CAN WITH THE GOSPEL, THE NUMBERS DON'T MATTER. THAT DOESN'T MEAN WE DON'T CARE ABOUT THE NUMBERS. IT MEANS WE CARE MOST ABOUT GIVING JESUS GLORY, WHICH IS SIMPLY ABOUT US DOING ALL WE CAN TO REACH THE LOST, RETAIN THE STRAYING, AND FEED THE FAITHFUL. I DON'T KNOW WHAT'S GOING TO HAPPEN 20 YEARS FROM NOW IN ONE GENERATION. I'm not joking. I'm not being like the bluebird of sunshine when I say that it is definitely possible that 20 years from now, through our increased gospel ministry efforts and through the blessing of the Holy Spirit, we could be over 400,000 people again. I believe sincerely that is possible. But I know it is also possible that in spite of our best efforts, we're down to 200,000. SO BE IT. BUT LET US THEN BE 200,000 MEN AND WOMEN WHO ARE IMMERSED IN THE WORD, WHO ARE FULL OF THE SPIRIT, WHO LOVE ONE ANOTHER AS KIN, WHO SEE THE FACE OF CHRIST IN THE LOST AND THEIR NEXT-DOOR NEIGHBOR, WHO ARE WILLING TO SACRIFICE ALL THEY ARE IN ALL THEY HAVE FOR HIS MISSION, WHO DO EVERYTHING THEY CAN TO BE SALT AND LIGHT IN THIS DARK AND DYING WORLD. MAY GOD GRANT US THAT GIFT NOW AND FOR THE GENERATIONS TO COME. THANK YOU FOR YOUR TIME.